How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 140 of X-Lapse, where we're back to uh, one of our old reliables here in Marauders. And boy, it feels like it's been a minute or two since we read uh, just a straightforward issue of Marauders. Uh, this is a book that uh, Damien had told us had was kind of just put on hold, put on pause for the X of Tens event. And uh, as we saw over the past several weeks, uh, that's exactly what happened. When last we left off, before the swords got in the way, uh, Kitty was back, and she was vowing to uh, take vengeance on Sebastian Shaw, who killed her, uh, boy, uh, eight issues ago. Oh, no, ten issues ago. I I apologize. That was Marauders number six, where Sebastian Shaw killed Kitty, and now we're into Marauders number 16. Now, this had a February 2021 cover date. The story is called Consequences, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Stefano Caselli. Colors by Edgar Delgado, letters VCs Corey Petit, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Bisa White Sabolski, cover price $3.99, and this one went on sale December 9th of 2020. Now we open with a mostly blank quote page, and it's some uh, threatening words from Call Me Kate. I believe these are the last words she spoke to Sebastian Shaw before she uh, went underwater back in Marauders number 6. From here we get our double-page spread of roll call and creds. Our roll call is Storm, Bishop, Call Me Kate, Emma Frost, and Sebastian Shaw. Now our comics content starts with uh, Bishop and Storm having a clandestine meeting, where the former shows the latter a little bit of that vine that he discovered on Kitty's remains back when he found her body. Now he deduces that they're the kind that only grows in one place, and of course that place is Krakoa. Now, he's surprised that Storm, well, he's surprised that Storm shows no surprise at this uh, deduction because uh, she already knows that Shaw was responsible for Kitty's demise. Now, Bishop is, uh, he doesn't seem too happy to be left in the dark here, but he asks Storm if uh, this is going to go unanswered, to which Storm assures him that it will not. And so, we shift scenes over to Hellfire Bay, where Kitty and Emma are still on horseback, or back on horseback. I mean, hell, they could still be on horseback from when we saw them like four or five issues ago. We've already said that uh, you know this book had the the big old pause button pushed on it uh, back in the uh, a few months back. And they talk about how the contest of swords is over as they approach the door of the Black Keep. Now they knock, and Sebastian goes to answer. Now this interrupts his uh, evening of uh, drinking and complaining about. How they had to convene over all that otherworld nonsense of late, uh, to which I say preach on. Uh, as Shaw approaches his front door, Kitty phases her fist through it and socks him right in the mush. Now this was with her left hand where the word Shaw has been unfortunately tattooed. 
Now, as Kitty and Emma phase in, Shaw's all, you know, hey, bring it. You know, he reminds them that he is a master of kinetic energy. Well, Emma suggests that he hold that thought as she shoots him with a blast of power-nullifying hoodoo, probably from one of those Russian gimmicks or one of the Skate 800 uh, bad guys we've met since the dawn of X started that all seem to have these mutant-nullifying powers. Now, Kitty then knees Shaw in the gut, which causes him to topple over. Then the ladies go about smashing a few bottles of his priceless whiskey. Emma proceeds to read Shaw the list of his latest transgressions, uh, which include working against Krakoan interests with Omanes Verendi and Madripoor, basically serving Kitty and the Marauders to them on a silver platter, which, I fair is fair, he doesn't deny it. But he is steadfast that he did not know that Verendi were planning on poisoning the magical miracle meds. Kitty then takes a big ol' swig of some expensive bottle and does her best Lockheed impression by spitting it into the fireplace. Which, I mean, I get what they're going for here, but seems like it might be a little too risky for just a sight gag like this. Now, Shaw pulls himself back up, and he claims that, powers or no, he can hold his own against Kitty and Emma. This doesn't work out so good. Kitty gives him one of those, like, five-finger death punch things, like that straight chop thing, right to his Adam apple, and that drops him like a rock. At which point, Emma decides to tell him how things are going to proceed. You see, Shaw's got him two choices. Either Emma and Kitty can go to the council with this, spilling every last bean about his treachery, which will likely land him in exile down in the hole with Sabretooth for, uh, ever. Or... Maybe this can remain a, you know, an in-house Hellfire Club affair. But in order for that to happen, Shaw's going to have to play some ball. Shaw's all F this, and he makes a break for it. Now this leads to an actual fun use of the dreaded nine-panel grid, where Shaw smashes his way out a second-story window and splats on the ground outside the Black Keep, where Kitty calmly phases through the door to retrieve him. All the while, Glob Herman looks on and isn't quite sure what to make of the situation. It's a pretty cute scene, though I'm not sure why Glob would just be, like, loitering around Hellfire Bay, but what are you going to do? So back inside, here's where things start to go uh, last scene in Audition for old Sebastian Shaw. If you're familiar with the film Audition, uh, we're getting into, like, sort of, like, revenge porn here. Um, But first... But first, Shaw does attempt to flip the script. You see, he only killed Kitty in order to confirm that she was actually a mutant. Sounds totally legit, doesn't it? Now, we all know Kitty can't use the Krakoan gateways. So, as such, Shaw claims that, hey, maybe she's not actually a mutant after all. Maybe she's a Neo. Well, he he doesn't actually say that, but I kind of wish he had. Um, Anyway... Since Kitty did die, and was able to return via the Resurrection Protocols, this removes any doubt that our girl is indeed a mutant. Shaw explains this, and asks for forgiveness. Kitty knows that this is horse crap, but allows the discussion to move forward a little bit. You see, she wasn't Shaw's only victim that night. If you recall, there was also a tiny dragon who was uh, very nearly drowned. And would you look at that, here he is now because Storm and Lockheed enter the Black Keep. Now, Lockheed, we're told, demands blood, which is kind of adorable. At least in theory, when he actually goes for it, it's going to be a little gross, and we're going to get there in just a bit. 
so Lockheed wants blood, but Storm just wants to be there to witness what's about to come. So Lockheed, he uh, approaches Sebastian Shaw, and he bites his right eye out. He doesn't even eat it, either. Instead, he just spits it into the fireplace, which is uh, kind of adding insult to injury there. Now, Sebastian Shaw, as you might imagine, is quite displeased to be without a right eye. At which time, Kitty proposes a toast and pours Shaw a glass. Now, thinking that the revenge tour is over, as a you know nearly literal eye-for-an-eye sort of deal, Shaw takes the glass and drinks from it. Now, while he drinks, Emma assures him that the loss of his eye was not his punishment. She then tells him that the black bishop, Shinobi Shaw, will serve countries who recognize Krakoan sovereignty, which leaves the Red Queen, Kitty Pride, to take over the black market. And, oh, by the way, that drink that he just chugged was laced with that very same Verendi poison. Whoops. So, uh, looks like either Shaw is about to die where he'll be put on indefinite hold in the Resurrection queue, or he'll survive and very likely wind up much worse for wear. Turns up it's the latter. See, Shaw seizes up and appears to be in a somewhat vegetative state. Now Kitty slips an eye patch out of her pocket and places it over Shaw's right eye hole. Emma is a little bemused, and she comments that it's weird that Kitty would have a patch at the ready, to which Kitty suggests that you never know when you might need something like that. What I think happened is Kitty just bought the deluxe pirate costume from Party City, and it came with an eye patch, so she didn't want to throw it out. Just kept it in the pocket. You never know. From here, we head over to a quiet council meeting. And, of course, the quiet council were down to ten members, if you recall. Apocalypse is gone, and Jean quit. Now, even though we saw her still being a member of the council in the post-X of Ten's Hellion issue... I guess we could just say that was a continuity hiccup. Uh, Whatever the case, it would appear as though, at the moment, they are keen on replacing Gene and A. So they want to get back to 12 uh, members. But for now, it's 10. And they also seem to be missing a chair on the spring side. You remember these? all these quarters are named after seasons, and the spring side belongs to the Hellfire Club. And they're missing a chair over there because old Sebastian Shaw is now in a wheelchair. And we see Kitty rolling him up to the table. Professor Xavier's all, uh, hey, what happened to Shaw? And Kitty's got no comment, but agrees to put it to a vote whether or not they go into the discussion. And Xavier suggests that maybe they do vote, and he votes yes. He wants to know what happened to Shaw. Other yes votes include Magneto, Sinister, Exodus, and Nightcrawler. The no votes include Mystique, who is laughing before voting. She could give a rat's ass what happened to Shaw. Uh, Also, Storm, Emma, Kitty, and Shaw himself. Though, it might appear as though Emma is using Shaw as something of a ventriloquist dummy right here. Uh, It's got, like, the the little curly... um, you know, voice balloon thing. You know, the 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 little pointer. <laughs> what what do we call it? The carrot that comes out of the bottom of a uh, of a dialogue balloon. Here, it's a little wavy, so it may mean that there's some sort of mental hoodoo there. So we've got us a tie, five to five. Now it's worth noting, Doug Ramsey is here looking on. You know, he's doing what he always does, hanging out with uh, Krakoa, and he appears to have a rather disapproving look on his face. And maybe we'll discuss that in a little bit. 
We close out the issue with Shaw creepily smiling, assuring his quiet council compatriots that he is still Krakoa's humble servant. I don't know if this means that Emma's controlling him to say that, or if he himself is saying that, because this smile is very, very creepy, and doesn't look like a, a manufactured one. That looks, it looks very, very telling. After this, we get one last mostly blank quote page, and we are out of here. Next episode, we will have our penultimate juggernaut editing. So we're going to be looking at juggernaut number four of five. But how about we talk about this issue here? Because uh, it really, really feels good to be back with uh, our regularly scheduled Marauders programming here. Um, This was really good. And it actually felt like worthy of the rather long build we've gone through to get here. Um, You know, I mentioned it earlier. Kitty was killed in Marauders number six. This is Marauders number 16. That's that's almost a year's worth of books. Not accounting for double shipping, of course, but that's a lot of a lot of books in the uh, in the interim there. So it's uh, it's cool that we're finally getting here and uh, the the event we actually get it feels like something that was built to. It felt like something that um, actually paid off the conflict and the uh, and the event. I mean, it's total revenge porn. And while it might have been Maybe a little too far in the brutal. Well, it was actually very, very brutal. I was waiting for them to like get the piano wire out and start, you know, cutting limbs off, like in that audition scene. It, it was a uh, pretty brutal. But that said, I I feel like uh, this is kind of an evolution of Kitty's character here, in that uh, maybe she's becoming a little bit more like Emma Frost here. Um, if we look at that scene where uh, you know Lockheed takes an eye. Emma Frost and Storm were both there for it, you know? Um, it feels like, uh, at least to me, maybe Kitty is, like, symbolically shifting from one mentor to another, you know? Like, Storm was who she'd always go to and sort of model herself after, where here, I mean, this is this is definitely, like, a, a more of an Emma move to, uh, to turn Shaw into a, a vegetable here, right? Maybe I'm thinking too hard about it, but that's kind of my takeaway from it. Um, it also might, uh, you know, explain why Doug was looking at the Hellfire crew with uh, such a unimpressed or disappointed look on his face uh, during the Quiet Council meeting here, which tells me, you know, not only was it, this wasn't brutality for brutality's sake. I feel like seeing that Doug was disapproving of this tells me that the brutality will be addressed. It was there with a purpose to maybe show that uh, there is a line and maybe they stepped over it here. You know, maybe there is no going back or maybe it'll be a tough road to get back to uh, the way we used to be. Because, uh, yeah, this was this was pretty extreme. Uh, let's talk about Shaw in his uh, vegetative state here. It feels like uh, quite the thing to just let hang out there without an investigation. You know, I don't know if this is something you put to a voter. This is something where you'd be like, nah, we better talk about this here. Um, I figure if one of the most powerful people in a society were to suddenly show up the way Shaw did, those around him would kind of demand an explanation because uh, not to compare the Quiet Council to, like, the mafia or anything, but you got to figure that these people are kind of like made men and women, right? 
where they kind of are reliant on one another here because if there are suspected shenanigans about uh, how members of the council are treating one another, then none of them should feel safe. You know, there is no safety in that sort of a situation. So it seems weird that they would put it to a vote and not just demand answers. Especially, I mean, the guy that wants the answers just happens to be one of the most powerful telepaths in the galaxy. Right. Uh, now, if Emma is actually using Shaw as like a ventriloquist dummy, you figure Xavier would just be able to pick up on that. Right. You'd think so anyway. So that just seemed a little too neat and tidy of, a, of an ending for me. Um, that's not to say that we won't pick it up next time we discuss Marauders. I hope we do. Um, but to close this one out, it just felt a little too tidy, a little too convenient that nobody would ask any questions. Nobody would uh, demand that there would be some answers here. Don't know. I don't know what the internal politics of the council are. Maybe there are rules against that sort of thing. Maybe everything has to go to a vote, even something as, uh, you know, out in left field as this one is But overall, I think this was a very, very strong issue um, I'm really liking the the odd maturation of Kitty Pride here um, I don't think I'd ever see her doing something like this before this era And while it's not my favorite thing to see her doing It is something new, and it's uh, kind of bold and daring And uh, I don't think I could ever hold, you know being daring against a writer here So really had a good time with this one uh, And also the art was lovely As it uh, usually is in this book So super pleased to be back To our regularly scheduled Marauders programming I hope you all are as well And I look forward to hearing your thoughts As we move forward Speaking of thoughts Let's hop into the mailbag Before we cut out of here We're going to start with Damien Who's talking about Gwenpool Strikes Back he says, just a quick comment this time. I loved reading this series, and it was great to hear how enthusiastic you were about it. But I wanted to let your listeners know that this series is one of the few that doesn't work as well digitally. It is really worth finding the paper copies of this series, as the elements where Gwen interacts with the page layouts are compromised on screen. Apart from that, I would encourage everyone listening to buy Gwenpool Strikes Back. And that's not something I ever thought about. Uh, you guys know how, how I roll. I am, you know, paper only. <laughs> I don't do digital of anything here. So I never even thought that the digital version might compromise the gimmick. Uh, so thank you for, uh, for letting us know that. As with, any, as with any comic, I will always recommend you pick up the physical copy. You know, if you have, if you have the infinite space... <laughs> Stick it um, Always, always get the physical version But uh, especially with uh, Gwenpool Strikes Back here Because there are a lot of fun gimmicks That she uses uh, Interacting with uh, You know, I guess we could call it the fourth wall But it's something, it's like more than that You know, because it's It's actually It's actually addressing the reader But it's also addressing the medium And the just the, the, as, as trite as it might sound, the, the language of uh, sequential art, she just really has a good time with it. I'm very happy that you were happy with this book, Damien. I was hoping that you would dig it. And uh, like I mentioned a few times, I was a little nervous about including it in the lineup here because I didn't know how folks would receive it. Uh, I'm to the point now where I'm, I'm hoping to get a, uh, a hashtag started, hashtag Gwenpool for X Factor. We need to get her in that book. <laughs> we need more Gwenpool. And uh, 
since the writer of that is now the writer of X Factor, I think it uh, stands to reason that that would be a very good place to uh, to have her uh, take up residency. Give her a, give her a room in the boneyard, and we'll be all good. Uh, Damien wraps up with anyway. Until I manage to become best friends with Jeff the Land Shark, make mine X lapsed. I think uh, we're all best friends with Jeff the Land Shark. He's got a lot of love to share. Except when he's, you know, covered in uh, symbiotic goop Like he was in the King in Black uh, tie-in issue of Deadpool Which is about as adorable as it sounds If you want to see a venomized Jeff the Landshark Pick up Deadpool number 10 It's, it, it, it's, worth, it's worth the trip uh, But thank you so much for uh, writing in, Damien And I hope all is well uh, Next, our friend Evan talking about Fantastic Four number 26 now he says, I am two issues behind on Fantastic Four, but I'm really hoping that Professor X's blow-off of Franklin turns out to be a plot by Dr. Doom or Nathaniel Richards or Kang or Hex Lady Stiltman. It's not that I have any trouble believing Chuck would be that cold and aloof. Heck, if he started calling people flat scans at this point, it wouldn't surprise me all that much. But the delivery and presentation just fits so poorly. It doesn't even make sense as an editorial fiat. The unmutanting of Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, Cloak and Dagger, and even Squirrel Girl all made a certain amount of sense outside the story. But Marvel has the rights back to the X-Men and the Fantastic Four, and they're bo- they've both been announced as heading into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So the only motivation I can think of that is that someone in story wants Franklin even more isolated and vulnerable. It hasn't been that long since we saw him at the end of time in a framing sequence for Mark Wade's History of the Marvel Universe... So that potential still has to be told there. Maybe Franklin even turned off his own powers over the responsibilities of this god role folks want to, folks seem to want to put him in. All that makes more sense than editorial going, not a mutant now. And uh, you're right. It, uh, I think like the only word I keep coming back to talking about um, the demutantifying of Franklin here is, is lazy. Because it just doesn't feel, it doesn't feel necessary, first of all. It goes against so much of established history here. Uh, like suddenly, Cerebro is it sees that he's not a mutant after being a thing for many, many, many moons. Uh, you know, in real time and in you know comics, Marvel's time, sliding time scale. Very, very weird. Um, and the delivery, uh, uh, the whole, the whole revelation occurring over the course of like two panels, where. We're basically just getting a recitation of what Xavier found doing a Cerebro scan, rather than an actual conversation. Because uh, did did Franklin even say anything? I don't even know if he got a word in. It was just Xavier's like, "Hey, this is how it is, and I'm out." It just didn't didn't seem right. It didn't work for me. Now Evan continues. As for Arboro, or whatever his name is, in the early FF issues, it was established that he was close to Valeria's age, which I place around 13 or so. Not that that doesn't make the whole consort thing creepy, but it seems to be more cultural differences than him being a candidate for it to catch a predator. At one point, Reed wondered why she was so infatuated with him, and Sue basically compared him to a young Namor, which is a funny bit. Now, for folks who hadn't listened to that episode and might not be following Fantastic Four... This Arboro guy, um, in this issue anyway, he's drawn to be like a full-grown man. Uh, Valeria is madly, deeply in love with him, and apparently he asked her to be his uh, concubine of sorts. And so she travels through the Forever Gate to visit him on his home planet or home galaxy or whatever the hell it is. 
And she finds that he has uh, like a dozen concubines or consorts and is quite displeased that, uh, that he would uh, have so many, you know, women feeding him grapes and, and fanning him with, uh, you know, big uh, palm leaves and uh, rubbing his feet. It's, it's very, very strange. Um, I didn't know that uh, Arboro was supposed to be a teenager. He, he's drawn to look fully grown, so <laughs> it's very, very bizarre. Uh, you could see uh, old Chris Hansen popping his head in and asking him to take a seat after a you know, sexually charged online conversation with uh, young Valeria here, which I don't know what her age is. I know she was rapidly aged, her and Franklin both, but... Uh, I mean, I'm I'm used to seeing her as a boy, like a, like a grade school age girl. So it, it's strange. It's strange that uh, I don't know the need to. I, I get I get the whole idea of doing like puppy love here, but I, I don't get like sexualizing her in in this way. And granted, I have no context here. I haven't read those early issues, but seeing like a shirtless grown man being you know fanned by a bunch of women. Expecting Valeria to join in, that's a little weird and feels quite unnecessary. But thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on Fantastic 426 and the demutinification of Franklin Richards there, Evan. I always appreciate it. Uh, next, uh, Nicholas talking about Juggernaut number three, or something that happened during the episode of Juggernaut number three. He says, I laughed way too hard at your quicksand anecdote. The world really is made of all types. Little did I know at the beginning of the episode that the least controversial part would be your legal opinions. And uh, what Nicholas is talking about, um, Juggernaut was in a uh, fight with Quicksand. Um, I think I think she's a Thor villain or maybe a Doctor Strange villain. I, I don't know who she is. I, I was expecting the Sandman, but we got Quicksand instead. And I talked about a recent um, boom at my... Blog, Chris is on Infinite Earths, where someone had discovered that I covered a bo- an issue of The Flash where Barry Allen is um, nearly sunk in quicksand. And it was linked to by a um, well-trafficked and prolific site that I, for whatever reason, clicked back on to see what it was because I thought maybe it was another comic book site or maybe it was a uh, just a content aggregator. That might have found the uh, the site, but no, it was a quicksand fetishist site. And yeah, I'm you know I'm not here to kink shame, but uh, I wasn't expecting that when I followed that uh, that link back. I I don't know, but <laughs> thank you so much for listening to that episode, Nicholas. It's always nice to hear from you. Uh, we're gonna wrap up with a letter from our friend Andrew Franklin talking about Hellions number seven. Now, Andrew says, I think this issue did a great job of setting the table for the series post-crossover. Seeing the new and improved Wild Child and Nanny was cool and creepy. It's nice to see that while they're not scrambled, something of consequence still came of their deaths. Wild Child is even drawn a little differently, which I thought was a cool detail. Nanny has a more sinister-looking suit of armor as well, which begs the question of how she actually got it. Does Krakoa provide her the means to make them? Can she survive outside the suit? And that's a great question because, you know, we do see Wild Child, like, actually hatch, right? We see him come out of the egg and he's standing upright. He, Like you mentioned here, he is drawn to be different. He's drawn to be less bestial and more, um, I guess, bipedal, for lack of a better term. Because he is, you know, he's always on two feet, but 
Here he's standing upright like a, like a human, right? Uh, Nanny, when she emerges, all we see is that her arms and her legs have popped out of the egg. So we don't get to see what she even looks like here, which, you know, we talk about, um, we talk about the way Wells uses the things we don't see just as much as the things we do see and is able to make things we don't see matter. Right? Um, so we don't see what Nanny looks like outside this shell. We don't know what her whole deal is here. We don't know how she got into the new shell. And I mean, that just makes us ask questions that well, I'm sure we'll eventually get some sort of an answer on here. Uh, maybe, hell, you know, maybe we won't. Maybe it's just one of those things that uh, we don't need to know. Uh, but I like that. I like that because when, when Nanny and Wild Child and Orphan Maker were killed on Araco or Amenth or wherever the hell they died, one of the things I was looking forward to, it's like, well, how are they going to have Nanny come out of an egg and then moved into the other egg? We're going to have to see her, and we don't. Same with Orphan Maker here, which I don't know that I'd ever seen him out of the armor, and of course, I guess we didn't, but I didn't know why. I didn't know that he had this, you know, amazing power or this very, very dangerous power. So I was interested in seeing, you know, what you know, what the deal is, and we didn't see it, you know, and that's... That's a pretty cool thing, in my opinion. Andrew continues, We check back into the Havoc subplot, a nice reminder that everyone's favorite X-Man, well, mine at the very least, has something going on with his brains and isn't happy with his placement on the team. It would be very nice if we can get some footnotes again. Anyway, I'm pretty sure this is all continuing plot points from X-Men Blue, where Inverted Havoc was a baddie with Emma Frost and Bastion, but I've never read that series. It does beg the question why Alex isn't being treated with some psionic therapy while he serves on the team. Could there be a conspiracy? Well, yes, I think there is. I really do think there is here. And I I had totally forgotten about the inverted havoc here from... That was Axis, wasn't it? Wow, that feels like it was yesterday and 150 years ago. That whole Axis thing. Ugh. I don't think I can tell you a single other thing that came out of that series. Didn't Carnage turn good and the Hobgoblin turn good? I I don't know. Maybe that's where Sabretooth turned good, too. So maybe I can tell you a couple things about it, but I can't tell you why it happened or, or how it wound up. But uh, I, I forgot all about that here, so I wonder if this is a lingering bit from Axis and being inverted and stuff. But as for it being a conspiracy, I'm pretty sure... I'm pretty sure it is here because it, uh, and this is something we've talked about since day one with Hellions, is that, you know, Havoc should maybe get the benefit of the doubt. You know, we we can't really compare him to someone like Empath or Grey Crow or Orphan Maker. Havoc is, you know, Cyclops' brother. He's been affiliated with the X-Men for many, many years at this point. He's been the leader of the X-Men. He's been the leader of X-Men sub-teams. He should get the benefit of the doubt here, I feel. And uh, I think there is definitely a reason why they aren't going that route and that they're sticking him on this team. You know, we've theorized that maybe he's a mole. Maybe he's not. Or maybe he's an unwitting mole. Maybe he doesn't know that he's a mole. I don't know. But uh, I am looking forward to learning more about this here. Uh, I mean, I, I've every time we talk about Hellions or Zeb Wells, it's always very, very glowing. And this is more of it here. This is very traditional uh, X-Men storytelling here, where we're actually getting these bubbling subplots. And I couldn't be happier. It's, it's really, really well done. Andrew continues, I'm very intrigued with the Orphan Maker mystery of what his mutant power is. I'm not holding my breath that we'll get some definitive answers about him, which I'm fine with, but I like it being brought up rather than not addressed. 
I know him and Nanny are kind of D-list characters, but in the last 20-odd years, you'd think someone would have come up with an answer to what made him a mutant. I'm still not quite sure what Nanny's power is. And yeah, Nanny was a scientist for the right. She made smiley suits, but didn't know the right was an anti-mutant organization when she worked for them. She escaped them somehow. And it's interesting you say that, because when we started on Hellions here, I didn't know diddly about Nanny. I'd read a couple of stories with her, didn't know... I couldn't have even told you if she was a mutant or not, and I, I did some little bit of research and found out that she's a like a l- extremely low-level telepath, which I guess is a is something. <laughs> I guess it technically makes her a mutant, but uh, it ain't much, I suppose. Um, Andrew continues, and we check back into the Psylocke Sinister relationship from Fallen Angels, confirming that Sinister does have some version of Psylocke's daughter or at least the basic genetic data of her daughter, kept safe in his laboratory in some biodigitized state, probably some bastardized form of how mutant backups are stored in Cerebro. Sinister seems to drop his clown routine when they're alone, and you can see that his evil smugness just oozes out of this comic. I feel sad for Quanan. I like her in this book, and I'm on board for seeing her storyline play out more. What better praise for Hellions is there than that? (laughs) And you're right. Uh, The Psylocke we saw in Fallen Angels was uh, a little precious, a little unpleasant. (laughs) Not someone I wanted to... uh, Before I knew it was a miniseries, I was like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. What did we get ourselves into with this book? But uh, here, it's wonderful. And I'm loving the duality of Sinister here, where... When he's in front of a crowd, he's this entertaining buffoon, this clown, and uh, when he gets down to business, he is a scary dude, you know? He is, uh, he's is he got everybody's number, and I think you're right on the money here with the uh, idea that his uh, you know digitized files are, are some sort of a bastardized version of uh, the Cerebro backups, because... I mean, we gotta imagine that we are headed to the uh, the Chimera era, and I'm sure we're gonna find out that Sinister's already hard at work on them, especially after getting that DNA from uh, or that genetic data from uh, Amenth, and he's got the Apoth stuff. Anyone who'd used Overclock, he's got the Sinister clones. He's got just uh, the the black market clone factory here. I think I think this is going to Bloom into something really, really fun And really, really interesting I I really am looking forward to it Andrew continues If that had been all this issue had been I would have been happy But no, thankfully we get the amazing reveal Of everyone's favorite ex-villain Well, mine at the very least The man we love to hate, Cameron Hodge I know I wasn't too keen on the opening arc's nostalgia trip back to Inferno at first, though issue 4 with Madeline's death showed me I was in error, but I'm all for this nostalgia trip. The Extinction Agenda TPB served as a huge part in making me an X-Men fan as a kid, and at the time I had really no reference for who Cameron Hodge was, but I knew he must be a big deal by the way he was treated in that story. Come to learn, he wasn't always a giant, insane, racist techno-spider, but he was a demon summoner who gets his head cut off, and before that, just a bigot with an army of soldiers in powered armor with creepy smiley faces. Oh, and his arch-enemy is Archangel of all people, and his anti-mutant army is called the Right. Enough said. Best ex-villain. They don't make him like this anymore. What a wild time the late 80s were. And it's interesting. I mean, I had this. I had a similar... Uh, thought of Cameron Hodge because, you know, I, I mentioned my, you know, I bought X Factor number one and that was his first appearance and I just 
blew him up to be a huge character here And um, I came into the X-Men books right after Extinction Agenda But Extinction Agenda comics were always on the wall at the shop Because, I mean, they had the Liefeld covers They were they were hot books for the day And I saw Cameron Hodge on those covers Or a couple of the covers had Cameron Hodge as the, as the giant, you know, racist techno spider And I, too, you know, blew him up into something that well, he's he's not. You know, I thought he was a an amazingly important villain and a huge part of X Men lore. And he, I mean, he's he's in there, but he's certainly not to the level I built him up to. Uh, it reminds me of the nineteen ninety two DC annuals, the uh, Eclipso, the Darkness Within. That was right as I was coming into the comic shops. You know, uh, the first DC stuff I saw were. The, the first DC stuff I paid attention to were these Eclipso things and, and so I blew Eclipso up into being like the most important villain in DC When, I mean, he's not So, it's I totally get that I totally get that And I, like you, was uh, very excited to see Cameron Hodge at the end of this issue Andrew continues A detail I really enjoyed was that these robotic smileys, once they detect the mutants and ID them as the X-Men, their programming allows them or forces them to express their agitated thoughts of subhuman swine and die mutant scum. Cameron Hodge actually programmed his machines to be racist, which is the most on-brand move he could make. Love to hate this guy. And that's a really good point there. I didn't even put two and two together. But yeah, Cameron Hodge programmed robots. To be racist, so definitely on brand and and definitely a a wild thing to see. Andrew continues, uh, Other than that, Sinister crying out for Clive is played so straight, and the panel layout so much like how a real shocking death would be shown on the page. It made me laugh out loud, something this series is getting very good at doing. It's just such a good book. And to chime in on something you brought up recently on the show, it's the only X book I buy. And if the podcast were to stop tomorrow, I'd continue to buy it without reading the other books. Well, maybe Cable and X Factor. And uh, I, I think I would second that emotion. Although, uh, if, I, if I wasn't, you know, insane and had to buy everything because that's just the way I am, I mean, Hellions uh, is, is definitely a, such a strong book. I would read it even if I uh, wasn't making myself read it. <laughs> it I mean, doesn't sound like high praise, but it is. It really is, because this is a very fun book. Every time I'm going through my X-Labs short box and we get to a Hellions uh, book, it's just, it's great. It's just a lot of fun here. It never feels like work, where some of these books, some of these books do feel like, uh, feel like it's, it's work to sit down with them for as long as I do. Um, but it's never that way with Hellions. If anything, Hellions is stressful the other way, because it's like, I gotta rein myself in from gushing too much about it And I know those are probably my most repetitive episodes And that's saying something, because I'm a very repetitive guy But the Hellions episodes, and anytime we bring up Hellions in the mailbag I feel like I get very repetitive just saying If you don't read this book, you should read this book It's a very good book Uh, Now Andrew wraps up with So until Hazard shows up on Krakoa, make mine X-lapsed Oh boy, Hazard Um, Now, talking about first impressions my first X-Men comic was X-Men Volume 2, number 13. The big bad in that was Hazard. Now, if you don't know Hazard, you might not know Hazard. He, he, he's not a big villain, but uh, I remember just being really, really taken by this character because we found out that he had this history with Professor X and like their, their fathers worked together in Alamogordo or something. 
And I thought Hazard was just going to be like the biggest thing ever. I remember looking at a wizard, and I had issue 13 of X-Men, and I found out that Hazard's first appearance was issue 12 of X-Men, and I'm like, oh, i got to get issue 12. i got to have Hazard's first appearance. And uh, his story really didn't go that far. Uh, it was 12 and 13, and I think he was gone until Mike Carey brought him back in X-Men Legacy, uh, probably... 15, 20 years later So all Hazard didn't really get much play I do wonder if he's on Krakoa somewhere though He very well might be He might be in the background of a, of, a, of an issue somewhere But uh, <laughs> I definitely appreciate the email, Andrew Always look forward to hearing your thoughts uh, If anyone else out there would like to chime in with their thoughts Please, please feel free to do so You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics Or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com you can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com and xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And you can listen to all the Chris and Reggie stuff at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that'll do it for me. I want to thank you all so much for allowing me to be part of your day. And until next time, as always, talk to you again real soon. See ya. <laughs>